0: Welcome to Tone Benders. my name is Tim and I will be your host for today. Before we go into the main interview with our special guest today, Stuart Wilson, I just want to give a quick disclaimer that this interview is now a couple months old. We did the interview the day Rise of Skywalker came out, which is a movie we just barely touch on because I hadn't seen it yet. We talk mostly about 1917, a little bit about the two popes. And since then obviously Stuart Wilson has won the Oscar for best mixing along with the rest of the re-recording mixers on 1917. Super duper congratulations to Stuart. One of the reasons it took us so long to get this episode out is we've been very busy, including doing a Tonebenders road trip to Austin, Texas, which was super fun. And I wanna send out a massive thanks to everyone who came out to the Tone Tonebenders meetup we had in Austin. The turnout blew our minds. We can't believe how many people were there, how many cool people were there. People are doing awesome work in Austin, Texas. I think if you go there, you will leave thinking, why don't I move there? That place is amazing. So we're gonna have some really great interviews and round tables that we did in Austin coming up. We're gonna pepper them in over the next couple months. So stay tuned for that. We also have a road trip coming up in September to Los Angeles. So if anyone has any good ideas of people we should be talking to, places we should be seeing in Los Angeles, maybe we can even set up a meetup there. If you think that would be interesting, shoot us an email at info at and give us any ideas for something that we should do while we're in Los Angeles in this coming up September. Okay, so let's roll to the interview with Stuart Wilson, a super nice guy with a credit list that is enviable of just about anyone you'd ever want to meet. So let's go to that. We have a very special guest with us today. Between myself and guest Stuart Wilson, there are five Oscar nominations, a ton of BAFTA nominations, a load of CAS Award nominations. Sadly, of course, these are all for Stuart. I have none myself. He has worked on some of the largest franchises this century, including five different Star Wars films, half the Harry Potter films, a bunch of Bond films, including my fave Skyfall. Some non-tentpole-type films that he's worked on include Edge of Tomorrow, another one of my favorites, Warhorse. Eastern Promises, and a real gem of a film, 24-Hour Party People. I can watch that every day for the rest of my life. I love that film. He's worked on three films that are almost coming out simultaneously this winter, Star Wars, Rise of Skywalker, The Two Popes, and 1917. I was lucky enough to catch an advanced screening a few weeks ago of 1917, and this is a spectacular achievement in filmmaking. Stuart, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here, Tim. Thank you. No problem. I'm glad you could join us. 1917 this film is set up so that the viewer to the viewer it appears to be one continuous take from beginning of the film to the end this is a rare technique that i'm not sure has ever been attempted on a scale this large when you were first told about it by sam mendes or whoever first approached you did this inspire excitement or intimidation in you
1: <laughs> i think a mix of excitement and intimidation yeah it was obviously going to be a huge challenge and sound would be a key storytelling element you know the sound of our lead character Schofield is key whether we're close or distant from him you know I wanted them to be able to choose to use the sound to zoom in and hear his breathing his struggle his emotional state if we want to or be more distant and hear him at a distance in the in the landscape he's in but he had a very clear vision for the film and I didn't want him to kind of be restricted by the the normal Sort of technical restrictions that we have in, in capturing good audio. Yes, it was great to just, he's such a master filmmaker. I just wanted to hear his vision of it and then see how I could accommodate that technically to not get in the way of his
0: process. Yeah, I don't think I mentioned in that long intro that you were the production sound mixer on this production. So because it's one continuous shot, the camera is going three hundred and sixty degrees around the characters at times. So you can't have a boom operator, you know, standing in the shot because the camera's gonna see them eventually. So how did you go about tackling this?
1: Well, we did have a boom operator. I mean, my sort of first thought was to carry my recorder documentary style and follow in the blind spot behind the camera. But in planning it out shot by shot, emerged that, number one, I'd be adding another set of unwanted footsteps to the sound. Number two, it wouldn't always be physically possible to keep out of shot, so I'd need a plan B anyway. And three, for the whole choreography to work, it was essential that a number of key crew could hear the dialogue live wherever they were stationed, and I would need to be able to broadcast the live mix to the director, camera crew, special effects script supervisor, video assist, et cetera, and they could be half a mile away over a hill. So a documentary approach wasn't gonna work for this one. Wow, so how did you go about it then? Well, it became a bit like a site-specific installation for each set that we had antenna networks and hundreds of yards of fiber optic cable. We hid antennas in munitions boxes, sandbags, piles of mud. I got the guys who were making the sandbags for the army there to make us some special bags from that same cloth to hide our antennas in. And got some uh, artificial grass as well, Covered, smeared it in mud and wrapped some of our equipment in that so it could be kind of hidden on the set. So yeah, it was a lot of planning. And the great thing in Sam's process was that the planning was was key to all the departments. So how much rehearsal went into getting this working? There was quite a long rehearsal period, which started out just with Sam and the actors pacing out the dialogue and using cardboard boxes or stakes in the ground to mark out the trenches so they could see where the dialogue, the rhythm of it, where characters had to get to each time, and then the set was built around that, so there was no accidents. It was all, but this rehearsal process allowed us to know where the camera would be, where the actors would be, and plan where we could be. And you always learn something from a rehearsal. I mean, putting wireless mics on, even if the costumes aren't finalized, you always learn something. So it was a great sort of practice run for the shoot, having these rehearsals and seeing if we could achieve the distances that we needed to achieve in terms of our transmission and rebroadcast.
0: Yeah, you're pushing the technology a bit to its limit there.
1: yeah. But I, I felt,
0: you know, the essential thing for
1: the continuous shot vision that Sam had would be to stay connected to our lead characters throughout the journey. So their dialogue, their movements and their breath had to hold the connection with the audience. So while it was a, a technical challenge to keep cover, I mean, the territory was challenging. You had long, deep trenches, battlefields, broken buildings, special effects... And there had to be a way of capturing the story in those circumstances, but it was very exciting and compelling to do that. So I I hope that comes across in the film.
0: Well, I was impressed with how clean the dialogue was when I was watching it, because you were obviously up against a lot of technical difficulties, but you don't feel it while you're watching the movie. I wasn't straining to hear anything. And uh, so, wh- you, how were you miking them in terms of the wireless? Just under their shirts, or were you getting. You know, I, I like to be
1: involved on a film as early as possible. And I was able to work with the costume department um, to collaborate and find ways of hiding mics in the costumes that was going to work for us. So, we had a, an experimentation period where you could. I mean, the British military uniforms are, are wool based, which is kind of scratchy and difficult, whereas the the US Army mostly is cotton-based, I think, and that's uh, kind of a lot more friendly Mm -hmm. for uh, wireless (laughs) mics. Because I was able to get in before the costumes were finalised and you could see how, you know, when a piece of wool was stitched to a piece of leather, was that going to be quiet enough? Where could we get the mics in so that they would be protected from the wind, but also give us the transparency of the voice that we needed? And how would the the ageing treatments that they used with wax and mud and oil, how would that affect things? So some things were remade and sometimes one costume would work and another one wouldn't. And we were able to kind of look at, well, why is that? So that was great. And so the mics were kind of pretty much built in to the uniforms uh, by the time we came to shoot. But George Mackay, our lead actor, I have to thank him for his patience and, and collaboration as well because he at one point I had four wireless mics on him at the same time wow. <laughs> just to cover all the the range of movements and head turns and things that he was going to be doing and also when he went in the river because wireless signals drop off severely underwater he had two body-worn recorders on him as well so that as he came up to gasp for air that was being recorded even if if we lost range on him
0: so what were the mics that you used in the underwater scenes or in water scenes i guess
1: i used a sennheiser mke1 okay which is a pretty it was pretty small and pretty robust and i have found that they cope okay in in uh wet situations.
0: <laughs> well, that's always good to know because you don't want to be putting something in that's not going to work. So I guess you've had experience with that. There's probably been underwater sequences in the Harry Potter films and stuff like that. So you've done it before, I assume?
1: Uh, yeah, it's done a bit with different microphones at different times. It's sort of um, evolving. The The problem is the companies, the manufacturers keep coming out with better products. So we keep having to spend money to uh, <laughs> just to get that tiny improvement on the gear. So... Yeah.
0: So you mentioned earlier about how you uh, were able to interact with both the costume department and I guess the directing department. I don't know. You were able to go to the rehearsals. That's something I think you maybe have more say in because you have all these previous huge films that you've worked on and award nominations. How do you suggest someone that's maybe earlier in their career finding ways to get sound kind of more thought about earlier in the stages of production?
1: Well, from a purely practical point of view I think productions companies they generally try and keep you away at arm's length for as long as possible because they don't want to have to start paying you (laughs) so I usually get some prep in my contract but how I do that is I would say well say I had a three weeks prep and on a small film or someone started out say they had a couple of days prep I would say well let me do half a day you know, five weeks out and have all those conversations and then I'll do another half a day, three weeks out and so on. So to pop in, speak to costumes, speak to special effects, talk to the electricians about where their generators going to be, all that kind of nuts and bolts stuff so that you're not having to turn up on the day and say there's a whole lot of problems and then people are going to be unhappy because they haven't got it in their schedule to to fix those problems. So... If you convince them that you don't need to be paid for that prep time, then it's well worth doing that prep time however you can get in there to have those early conversations so that people have got sound in mind when they're designing and choosing fabrics and so on.
0: And Sam Mendes, you feel like he's got sound in mind a lot?
1: I think he does, yeah. I think because I've worked with them on two other films, so there was a, a trust relationship that we didn't have to discuss it too much um but he's all you know he's listening when we're shooting so if he's got any issues or questions then we can discuss them but I think he, he he um he placed a lot of trust in us to take care of the sound so he
0: could be taking care of everything else well that's nice to be trusted
1: yes yeah
0: <laughs> yes it's well earned I'm sure.
1: Well, no, it doesn't. I mean, I, I'm just starting a, a movie now. I won't say what it is, but the first couple of days have been partly about building up the trust with the director. So even with a lot of experience, it's still every day you have to come up with the goods and uh, that the director's maybe hearing something he's not used to hearing or it's a different set of headphones, a different IEM, but he's just, you know, they might be nervous and you you have to build that all over again. So, yeah, it's not taken for
0: granted. Do you have any advice for ways to get the director to trust you, other than obviously delivering nice tracks?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think the headphones and whatever the director's listening through is very important. That's our link with them. And directors more than ever are used to listening to good quality audio and good quality systems because on your phone you can listen to incredible audio reproduction. So we need to... You're not going to go away with a dodgy old hissy com tech anymore. <laughs> you, you have to you have to pay attention to that link and put a bit of time and investment into making sure they're going to be hearing it um, as good as they can and if there's any issues then invite them to come and listen to playback from your recorder directly um, so they can hear you can reassure them that this is uh, what they're getting and' it's, it's good and it's going to be good in the film.
0: So speaking of recorders, what's your weapons of choice?
1: I use the Cantar X three recorder, which is um, it's a French machine, uh, twenty four tracks, but it is great. Uh, it has eight fabulous preamps, which can cope with a lot of dynamic range. It's got good limiters, and uh, yeah, I've, uh, uh, that's what I like.
0: How long have you been using that for?
1: Um, I've been using it uh, a few years now. Before I had the Cantar X two. Mm-hmm. Um, which I used for maybe ten years. It's a workhorse, eh? It was a yeah. It was a great machine. Better be for the price. Well, that's it. <laughs> but then, but then, a lot of my colleagues who went for different manufacturers' recorders in the ten years that I was using that one, they were they had maybe three or four different mm-hmm. ones. So it, it kind of paid for itself in the end.
0: Fair enough. It's always uh, something in North America. Kantar isn't quite as popular as sound devices and the Zaxcom. Mm. And, uh, the, there's like a weird war between the sound devices and the Zaxcom people because they each just put, it's, it almost comes down to interface, Mm. like the, how they can get around quickly within the way they know how it works with their brain. Mm. But, uh, The cantar is every time I've seen one that you just you almost want like a angelic spotlight to come down on it because it's so unique looking and uh, it always sounds amazing. (laughs) So uh, to continue our talk of earlier of interdepartmental communication. How much communication do you have with the post-sound people when you're working on... Well, let's use 1917 as an example.
1: Well, when I started working with uh, in prep for the film, I mean, Sam Mendes, he sent me the script sort of 10 months ahead. And, you know, knowing about his vision that far in advance gave me the chance to get ideas together to secure a really talented crew, and very importantly, to connect with the other creative departments involved, including the sound post team. So Oliver Tarney... I was a sound designer. I've known Oliver for years, but this was the first chance we'd been able to work together. And also on his team, the dialogue editor, Rachel Tate, who was pretty key to making sure that probably 95% of the production audio was, was what was used in the end. So Oliver and I discussed the need for the sound to extend the world beyond the frame, and he had ideas about that, about recording in stereo and so on the booms we had additional microphones pointing sideways to capture that world and give us width as we traveled through the trenches and the landscape so that was a way of helping the audience to experience that passing through the soundscape with our heroes so yeah so I got uh, had early conversations with Oliver but not too much during shooting
0: you got your hands full at that point
1: Yeah. So
0: do you get any feedback from the post team?
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, we try and keep in touch and make sure they're happy with anything. If if there's any wild tracks they might need or if they have any issues, you know, we like to keep the door open to keep that dialogue going so that we're able to chat and just keep talking and and about how it's shaping up and the way we see things going and so on.
0: So if... After you finish a film, you get a phone call from the dialogue editor or the post supervisor saying you did a great job. Is that something really rare or saying anything really? Like, is it like, do you find that once you finish and deliver your tracks, you're moving on to your next project and you're not thinking about that one anymore? Or do you appreciate them reaching out to you? I guess I'm asking.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, that that is a great, that's what keeps us going. You know, it it, (laughs) it is probably rare because everybody's in their own little world but it is you know when you get that feedback from posts and and they're happy with the tracks that's that's amazing that keeps my guys going my team as well you know that they just want to know how the post was if you get a little a call or an email you know those are the people that they see it in all its you know raw form (laughs) so if, if they have a good feedback then that's you know that's gold
0: for sure. Well, I guess the ultimate uh, feedback is that Sam Mendes keeps hiring you. So he's obviously happy with the previous film you worked on.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. No, I mean, it was it was such a privilege to be on this. I and mean, I think this is the most collaborative film I've worked on. So, you know, I was really chuffed to be part of this team.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. When I was sitting in the theatre... It's an adrenaline rush in a, a unique way for a film. It's, it's a very unique film, the emotions that it brings out in you as you're literally sitting on the edge of your seat at times. So the other, another movie that you worked on this year is The Two Popes. That, that's a bit of a different uh, specter uh, there, <laughs> eh? <laughs> uh, yes,
1: very different. But in terms of the sound, I mean, I think it's great. We had a great post-production team as well. But it was very interesting because we shot in real places. And we were in Argentina, where Pope Francis comes from. We were filming in some of the slums, going back to places where he sort of preached. And you go into these slums and there's so much going on. There's so much noise. There's dogs. There's music. There's shops selling stuff. There's people making barbecue out in the street. And, you know, a, a lot of the slums where they live is right under the freeway with, you know, an aircraft going over. So we think, well, we can't control this. And also these people are, we're coming into their neighborhood to shoot. You know, you can't come in there, you know, people from Britain and start trying to lock things down. But that also, you want that life in the sound. But, you know, your your instinct is to try and lock everything down so you get clean dialogue. So I use quite a lot. I would have a second recorder with an ambisonic surround mic set up so that we were capturing all that noise and life and energy at the same time as we're recording the dialogue so that in post-production the dialogue editors could, if they needed something to bridge edits or something, that they wouldn't just have to be adding more unwanted noise, but they would have the synchronous noise or whatever characterful sound was going on at the time.
0: Did you get any feedback on how that worked?
1: Yeah, I think they were happy with it. I mean, they they managed to preserve so much of the production track in these noisy places. That's what we ended up using. There was a particular challenge with that in that um perhaps I shouldn't go, should go into that until it's uh, until it's been out and all the stories have been told. But it was great because we shot for real in in Italy and in Argentina. And so we were able to get all the sound of that. And the editor Fernando Stutz is a fabulously creative sound editor as well as a picture editor. So I think he really um made the most of it and brought his own creative input to the track as well so i was really pleased with the result
0: but definitely a change of pace from uh, 1917 and rise of skywalker
1: yeah but it's great to you know i've done films like that like mary magdalene as well which was a another independent thing which you know hardly anyone got to see but doing these smaller films on location is you don't want to be stuck in a studio all the time it's great to get out on the road and, and be you know, just improvising on the hood.
0: <laughs> Get the <laughs> adrenaline going. I guess it happens both ways. But um, so I Star Wars came out today. I actually have tickets to go see it later today. It's morning here where I am. So I'm going to be seeing it later today. So I, I don't have any insightful questions to ask you on that one because I haven't seen it yet. But I assume that it was your, what was it, your fourth or fifth Star Wars film? Your fifth one? Fifth Star Wars film, yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of difficult to believe that we're here at the end of the, the last trilogy of the trilogies because I, I worked on episodes 7, 8 and 9. The Rise of Skywalker's its climax, but yeah, I mean, I honestly, I couldn't have dreamed of being somehow part of this world, you know, when I started out as an intern coiling cables. <laughs> um, so there's a good degree of pinching myself going on when you see these massive billboards of the Star Wars movie and you think, hey, I want to go and see that, and then you think, oh, hang on a minute, I've... I, uh, <laughs> Yeah, sp- I spent six months of my life working on it. But the no, the Star Wars team have given me so much. J.J. J. Abrams, as most people will tell you, is a dream director. He's a true fan. He brings a feeling of celebration to the, the filming process. And yeah, you work with that sense you're all in it for, for the love of it, really. So it was amazing. And also, you know, so many of the crew are passionate about it. You know, they're there doing what they've always dreamed of doing. So... Yeah, it's when things are challenging, that goes a long way.
0: For sure. What order did you shoot these three films in?
1: Um, What, the the, the Star Wars films?
0: Uh, No, Star Wars, Two Popes, and
1: 1917. Oh, I see, I see. Uh, Star Wars was first, then The Two Popes, then 1917.
0: Yeah. Okay, wow. Well, uh, that's quite a year for you, because all of those films, well, the reviews aren't really out yet for Star Wars. I guess they'll start rolling in today. But uh, definitely the other two, everyone has got nothing but praise for them. And uh, I'm sure everyone's gonna love the Star Wars. I'm looking forward to going seeing it myself. So congratulations on uh, being so busy this year on such uh, prestigious films, it's amazing.
1: Yes, it is amazing. I think there can never be a year, another year like this. It'll be all downhill from here, but uh, yeah, it's, no, I'm so. Uh,
0: yeah, you might as well just pack it but, in, you know. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. We really appreciate it.
1: Okay, Tim. Yeah, no, good to talk to you. Take care. Bye.
0: Bye now. Can you imagine working on the Harry Potter series, the Star Wars series, the James Bond series, and the 1917 on top of that? Stuart Wilson is a damn legend. He's worked on some of the greatest, biggest tentpole franchises that have ever existed, and uh, some of the better ones at that, too. Thank you very much for Stuart Wilson for joining us today. I want to send a humongous big thanks to Yanni Caldas for volunteering to edit this episode for us. Yanni is a composer and sound designer editor based out of Toronto. He's worked on TV series, ads, audio forensics and an upcoming video game. He's done it all. He was super great to work with. So if you need some sound editing help, look up Yanni at amnesiasound.ca or on Twitter slash Instagram at amnesiasound. If you want Insta links for that, go to our website to this episode. So page and you will find links to ways to contact Yanni, and you can also see trailers for some of the movies that we talked about and uh, if you want to see what Stuart Wilson looks like there's a picture there too. Ooh. Thanks for joining us today we'll catch you next time.
1: Thumbbinders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or b or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button.
0: Thanks for listening.